It's been about two years since we recorded those episodes, and the history of those episodes continues to be relevant today. But before we ended, Paul and I really wanted to give an updated view on what is currently being proposed as solutions for recovering some of the destruction that the Trump administration has done on U.S. immigration law. So so on this episode, I'm going to talk to Paul about the general question of can we recover from the Trump administration? How do we begin to do that? And what are the merits and demerits of some of the current plans being proposed by presidential nominees, think tanks, experts, and finally some concluding remarks from Paul Wickham Schmidt on how we can move forward from this terrifying time. Okay, you were saying you had a friend, what? No, I'm here at fellowship program and about half of us on the program don't think or, or think that Trump will win. So, well, yeah, I think it's dark times. Thinking that having it happen are two different things. 65% of Americans think Trump will win, but about 50% intend to vote for Bernie. So, it maybe, maybe it won't happen, maybe it will. I don't know. Yeah. It definitely <laughs> could. I, I don't rule out that possibility. But you got to remember the same people are telling you that Bernie can't win are the same ones that told you that Hillary can't lose. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if I believe the polls. I think it's more of um, people's personal feelings about where the country is at. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. I don't know. So, yeah. But I, so I've, I've been seeing that. Um, there are a few court cases that are also coming up, um, both for the board and, um, I think the Supreme Court recently picked up, uh, or said it was going to hear a case that, um, will decide whether or not giving advice to immigrants could be considered illegal. Did you hear about that? Yeah. I mean, it's a criminal case, uh. The Supremes, I think, are pretty much uh, in the bag for Trump, so uh, I wouldn't expect, even though the government's argument seems really absurd, I I wouldn't uh, lay bets that the Roberts and the other four righty justices aren't going to go along to get along. I mean, that's sort of been the pattern we have here. Right. Did you happen to read the Sotomayor dissent in, uh, I posted it on... uh, No, I didn't. The Cook County case, where she ripped into her colleagues for basically tilting for the government, specifically in immigration cases. Oh, really? No, I didn't read it. I can go back and read So at least somebody's making a record of what's really, you know, sometimes all you can do is make a record of what's happening. Right. For the future. That's dark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I definitely, I want to talk to you about how, yeah, well, how that's going to affect, well, maybe, maybe less the Supreme Court cases, but how board decisions that are happening now under Trump are going to be affecting future immigration cases that are heard. Because can they, can the board yeah. decisions that happen now be thrown out going forward if we do have an, a new president ever in, in, in my lifetime ever again, which I hope we do. <laughs> If um, if the board decisions that are currently happening can be scraped, can is it only a situation where now this is part of immigration law and we can build on it? If there's an Article One immigration court, will they have to? Yeah, if we do create I, an Article I One, I think um, the board decisions. It's pretty clear have gone along with the session. Our attorney general decisions, and that is to uh, make everything more restrictive, particularly attacking asylum seekers trying to narrow down the ability to qualify for asylum, particularly for particular social groups, women, families. And the board has basically gotten the message. I think they're going along to get along. Uh, they basically read the well known. Costicates out of the law in their last precedent decision. I think we, I've heard there are regulations underway that would pretty much do away with asylum laws as we understand it. 
Yeah, you get a different president, you get a different attorney general. I guess they could repeal all the precedents and board members around and start rebuilding asylum law again. Maybe you could do it by regulation. But of course, the two main problems is one, a lot of people are going to die between now and then. So, when, you know, it's not like people aren't going to, they're being hurt now. It's not like they won't be hurt. Uh, the longer this goes on, as we dismantle the law, it's going to take a while to rebuild it. And obviously what's just been proved is the immigration court isn't really an effective, uh, fair and impartial adjudicator. Each administration can basically come in and pretty much overnight change the rules without any particular reason other than they want to do it. So a president could restore due process and asylum law, but then the next, uh, you know, the next Republican president could just do away with it. So you really do need a, a independent system. Now just doing it administratively doesn't always. Oh, is that it? There's no other way? Successful on McConnell's help is remaking the courts. So you can see that the Supreme Court is basically tanked uh, to the right. They're, they're part of the uh, sort of uh, xenophobic white nationalist uh, movement against asylum seekers of cover, color. And there'll be more and more Trump judges on the lower court. So even if the president does try and straighten things out administratively, I wouldn't guarantee that the same uh, judges that are now complaining about nationwide injunctions and courts interfering with executive programs uh, won't come up with ways to uh, stop a uh, president from restoring the rights of asylum seekers. I mean, you got a you got a badly tilted system with sort of intellectual corruption throughout, including in the Article Three court. So. That's not going to disappear overnight, and it particularly wouldn't disappear if you, I mean, if you hypothesize that a Democrat becomes president, but the Republicans, uh, Mitch McConnell, is still in charge of the Senate. I don't know how many judges are going to get appointed either. Oh God! I mean, yeah, I. You stole I, the last time around. I really hope Mitch McConnell isn't going to stay in power. Say there is an Article One court that's created, do they have to take in these current decisions, the current immigration court decisions, uh, into account? Will they will well, they have to use those as precedent? That's, yeah, that, that's a good question, Marie. Uh, um, I most of the bills that I've seen that create an Article One court basically more or less transfer the immigration as is, so I would think all the existing precedents would go with it. Now, over time, of course, it'd be in a, a different appointment process, and I think, and I'm thinking of the FBA version, I think the FBA version of the Article One bill, grandfather... Sorry, what is the FBA? Uh, Federal Bar Association oh, version okay. of the bill. Oh. Uh, there's several. There's one, the Federal Bar Association's version transfers basically the existing court to an Article One organization, mm-hmm. and there'd be a two-year transition period during which existing judges and board members could continue to serve. Mm-hmm. I would think that some folks on the bench right now would have a hard time unless they changed uh, their attitudes and their uh, decision-making quite a bit, uh, being selected in a quality-based process. The current system is weighted almost 100% toward former prosecutors and government uh, officials, and the judges tend to have a pro-government, at least, outlook coming into the job. Right. Right. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I think you are pointing out that there's no silver bullet overnight solution. I don't know that, you know, the first day wouldn't be able to solve all of the many existing problems, but Mm -hmm. it's setting up a framework where due process and fair and impartial adjudication will be the overriding concerns, quality will be restored, and uh, over time, 
I think an Article One court could get some control on the caseload that's now out of control. I mean, obviously, Sessions took away the authority of the judges to uh, close cases that really were dormant, shouldn't have been on the docket, to push uh, the DHS to prioritize the dockets. Uh, if you restored that authority that most courts have, I think uh, probably the majority of the older cases could be taken off uh, docket, and uh, you know you could work much more in the, uh, with the more recent cases where the records aren't old. And the, the other obvious thing that's missing is uh, if asylum law were properly applied in the generous manner. Uh, it was intended and were positive precedents, precedents instead of negative precedents. Uh, you know, many more cases would be granted at the asylum office. Many more cases could be uh, granted in shorter hearings at the immigration court level. And over time, you'd stop clogging the system with asylum cases that really shouldn't be there because people qualify. Right now, everything's being litigated, including cases that maybe eight, nine years ago was slammed on grants and now right. you know, heavily litigated. So that the system is actually going backwards. Wow. Right, right. And that definitely makes and, sense. Um, I mean, the other thing, as a result of this system, there's absolutely no positive guidance. Uh, Asylum seekers lose every precedent. Uh, all of the AG's rulings have been against the individuals. Almost all the board rulings uh, in the last three years, all the precedents have been negative to the rights uh, of individuals. So individuals lose almost every case at the attorney general or the board level that's going to be a precedent. So say an Article One court is created, how do you prevent it from being stacked with conservative judges? You know, it sort of depends on the administration. I think most Article One proposals have the board being judicially appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, and then the board presidentially confirmed running the merit selection system for immigration judges. So. You know, I'm not sure there's any one thing that will stop uh, a president from appointing conservatives, liberals. On the other hand, the hope is if you get people in there, I think with some expertise, who, aren't, who don't have the attorney general looking over their shoulder, uh, that over time they will respond to the law and the legal arguments rather than the political agenda uh, being pushed. I have to admit that the current performance of the Article 3 courts doesn't give me as much confidence that that'll happen as I. And the current system clearly is. I think I I think I'm just worried that there aren't enough safeguards in the Article One court suggestions currently being put forward that would prevent them from being stacked in the way that other courts are currently being stacked by Republicans. Well, I suppose that, I, I see the point. It, it's a very legitimate point. I guess my question then is, what's the alternative? We, we know that what we have now- That's my question to you. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I don't see any other alternative. Uh, but is there is there something else that could be added? to listen to each other and to, you know, 
not just vote as a block all the time. Of course, you know, you can argue the problem there is, I suppose either a Republican or a Democrat could just, you know, a Democrat could, re- could appoint Republicans in name only, and I suppose a Democrat, a Republican could appoint, uh, you know, Democrats for Trump to the board. So how do you, you know, how could you judge the legitimacy of whether the person being appointed is a real Democrat or just a, uh, a Democratic, uh, a Republican plant or the Democratic Party vice versa? I mean, in theory, that's what the Senate confirmation is for. But right now, most people would say the Senate confirmation process uh, has pretty much become a stamp under McConnell. And, you know, it could be that the whole judicial appointment system is broken. But that's a bigger nut to, you know, that isn't going to easily be solved as that would require a constitutional amendment, which I don't realistically see that, you know, that's something law professors talk about, but I don't see it as a realistic possibility. If you read academic treatises on it, you'll see there are proposals out there for limiting the terms of federal judges. I suppose you could put in experience requirements maybe I mean, that's been one of the complaints is that under this administration there is no more uh, immigration experience requirement for appointment no. the only thing that's really important is litigation experience so I suppose you could write into the legislation a requirement that you know somebody demonstrated at least uh, X number of years of experience and yeah I don't know neither of those neither of those recommendations sound like like a fix. I think you're right that there's there's a lot of doubt in the ability of the executive branch and the ability of the legislative branch. And so it's it's almost like we don't have checks and balances anymore. Unfortunately, we're talking in a time of what I call catastrophic institutional failure. Right, we're right. <laughs> checks and balances. But it's pretty clear that at this point, the president does what he wants to. Uh, he directs the people in the executive branch to do what he wants them to do. Right. And although we're joking about there not being checks and balances on executive power in the immigration system in the U.S., there are, we're joking because there actually isn't. Most power is placed under the executive branch. And without legislative reform, there can be no independent court system, for example. There can't be laws that protect the rights of undocumented persons, and undocumented people will continue to be detained indefinitely without court hearings. So it is really important that there be legislative reform when we talk about when we talk about systemic immigration reform. And who better to initiate legislative reform than a presidential candidate? So let's switch into talking about the Democratic candidates currently at play. And as of this moment, uh, it's primarily Bernie and Biden, although that may change in the future. Right. Which I don't know. Well, How do you feel about that one? I mean, I think, well, I think the good thing about Bernie's plan uh, is that I think, one, he does address most of the trouble areas, the, the immigration courts, the asylum system, the detention system, uh, the uh, lack of representation and uh, uh, dream, you know, the treatment of dreamers, etc., the need to get uh, an immigration policy that actually matches the national interest and maybe responds more to market forces than the one we have. Uh, yeah, it does seem to be the same old, same old in terms of I'm going to do it legislate, uh, by, excuse me, by executive order, which is pretty much just Trump in reverse. And my own observation is it's usually easier to, to destroy than to build. I mean, uh, Trump was basically, Trump and his supporters and a lot of the GOP were basically looking to destroy the existing system and make it hard for anybody to immigrate to get a fair uh, shot. It's easier to destroy than to build. It doesn't take as many resources. I mean, the only thing he's really had to build is the wall, and he has had some trouble getting the resources for that. But, uh, 
Uh, he's been able to pretty much dismantle the immigration courts, dismantle the refugee and asylum systems, uh, you know, inhibit legal immigration, what appears to be in some cases punitive-based enforcement, may take resources and legislation. So that's one potential problem, but realistically, just undoing what Trump has done might be a you know, it might be the first step, and depending on who has control of Congress, it might be about all it gets done for right now. I mean, there are three pieces of legislation that seems to be in a rational system are out there that address things that Sanders has raised. That we, uh, Which ones? Support. Okay. Well, the three things that are already out there that in a rational system would have some degree of first an independent immigration. I think everybody would have an interest in a fair system that works on some sort of predictable time frame that isn't independent courts do. A second thing that's out there, uh, introduced by Senator Leahy and others, is the Refugee Protection Act of 2019, which basically restores uh, common sense and legality to the refugee system, uh, you know, reestablishes the refugee definition, does away with a lot of the, uh, the precedents that have tended to narrow it, uh, addresses the situation of representation for uh, vulnerable asylum seekers with the goal of getting everybody applying for asylum represented, uh, cuts detention, which is proved to be uh, both costly and uh, not an effective uh, current. So, you know, I think, again, in a, there was a time when refugee and asylum provisions used to get some bipartisan backing. Uh, oh, the other thing it deals with is reestablishing the refugee system so that uh, there'd be a, at least 95,000 refugees would be admitted every year. You know, which is the average under administrations on both parties. So, again, looking at it, it doesn't seem like it should be radical change. It's basically restoring things that should have, probably should have been in a well-functioning system anyway. The third thing that should be a no-brainer that's been out. Yeah. Okay, the third, the third thing out there is dreamer relief. Okay. Well, I think it's time. Uh, there's a lot of bills out there, time for relief for the dreamers. With 800,000-some dreamers there, I don't see them as being removed through the immigration hearing process anytime uh, in the foreseeable future, even if this administration were uh, were to be reelected. So they're going to be here, but by not giving them status, the administration is imposing a lot of pain and suffering on them. It makes, without any status, it makes it hard for them to go to school. They can't get scholarships. I think they won't be able to join the military. Uh, without work authorization, they have to work basically on underground jobs. So what it's really doing is, is preventing the United States from realizing the full potential of a bunch of great, uh, talented and committed American young folks uh, who are going to be part of our society, but we're more or less uh, condemning them to a, uh, a role where they can't fully contribute. So dreamer relief should be a no-brainer to be good for everybody. And again, it's, uh, I think maybe in, in, in other times, Give us some 
model for a future larger scale uh, legalization program or earned legalization program by testing it out and seeing how it works on uh, the dreamer population and oh, then uh, trying to take what we learned from that experience and apply it to hopefully a, a larger population of long-term law-abiding residents. Right, wait, because um, Bernie Sanders does want to create a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million undocumented people within the first five right. years. And he's going to put DACA, I'm assuming, um, dreamers first. You think that is a good testing ground for... Yeah, I think it makes sense. Uh, you know, both in terms of seeing how the criteria work out and also... You know, looking realistically at the processing capacity, I think that from the dreamers, you would get a, a some empirical look at what the, the resource commitment would be to do a larger program and what oh, wow. the uh, pitfalls might be that you'd want to work around uh, in advance. And I think going back to some of our earlier discussions, uh, we had this problem in, in 1986 with ERCA. And uh, it, it did take a lot of scrambling for uh, the old INS to get ready to implement that program. Uh, we did rely a lot on the private sector grants for the private sector, the private sector to help out. I could think, I think you could do that again with an administration that had a different relationship with the private immigration sector. But it'd be a much more ambitious undertaking talking you know, two or three times the number of people that were legalized during IRCA. So I think it would take some planning and something that can't really be done uh, just overnight. It would, it would uh, uh, take some thought as to how to do it and how to set it up so that it doesn't interfere with normal immigration operations. Interesting, because obviously another aspect of Bernie's plan is to end private private detention centers to right. cut those ties. So what great. kind of... You can, you those, can that sounds great. Private detention and put it into grants to groups and states to both increase representation or uh, you know maybe as part of the legalization program. But you could certainly reprogram money, you know, money that we're now wasting on private detention, on building walls where they don't need to be built on sort of over you know sending the border patrol to uh sanctuary cities to scare people i mean there's a lot of things in immigration enforcement that seem to be either unnecessary or counterproductive and which are also uh expensive so i'm not saying it's a complete solution but clearly there are places where money could be reprogrammed to things that are actually in the national interest rather than things that are actually working against the national interest. Interesting. I mean, just think, just one aspect, think of all the, the money that's tied up right now in litigation, defending detention, defending all sorts of overreach by the Trump administration. You know, it, it's a big part of the federal court docket. It's got uh, lots of lawyers at the Justice Department working on it. Uh, and it's also got tons of lawyers in private practice working on it. I work with big law firms almost every week who are helping represent people pro bono to help our roundtable to file amicus briefs or draft statements or give training sessions. What if all those resources were put into actually solving problems by representing people and making the law work rather than in just resisting the administration's uh, incursions into the laws. I also wanted to ask, there's a, well, there's a 5.7 million case backlog just for processing immigration forms. So I think I'm also wondering if when we're talking about pathways to citizenships for undocumented folks, would that... How, how does that function with the current and the 5.7 million case backlog, I guess I should have said, is a USCIS backlog. So right. this is just well, like processing. I mean, obviously, I think reform of USCIS maybe it doesn't belong in DHS 
question about hiring as the ultimate solution to the USCIS case backlog, because it seems to me that even prior to the Trump administration, the USCIS case backlog was increasing, and there were multiple attempts to decrease wait times that didn't work. I mean, they often ended up increasing the wait times, like specifically for the green card process, right? Be great. So, um, like cancellation. I mean, Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and just let the markets work these things out would probably be easier to administer and less subject to manipulation. So that's another thing. Uh, you know, I, I, I hesitate to say you could go to a complete market-based system like the Cato Institute would like to do, but certainly right, right. <laughs> I think right now we're sort of working without giving much consideration to market forces at all. I would let, I, I think by putting our system in harmony with market forces that it would simplify things and uh, help overall. Another area that I've hit on that I think we, we under enforce that probably should be something and that is wage and hour enforcement. I mean, to the extent that expanded immigration becomes a, a is abused by some unscrupulous employers to you know to exploit labor rather than something like a labor certification which I don't think is very effective maybe a better you know devoting more resources to making sure compliers and employers are running safe legal places of employment and, and actually paying the wages they're supposed to be paying would be a step in the right direction. And that would help all American workers, not just uh, uh, migrant workers. Can you talk more about this? What would it mean to shift concentration from immigration enforcement, which primarily affects hardworking potential citizens, to raising employment standards and enforcing employer compliance with immigration standards, which would mean that the punishment would shift to employers? It, it was tried in the 80s, right? When you talk about IRCA, um, the government has already tried to punish employers. Right. Now, but maybe one of the reasons IRCA didn't work was it was directed at finding employers. It may have been, one, not effective, and two, you know, it was too hard to enforce. It just never caught on. So maybe something like a wage an hour program to work on maybe work, improving working conditions for all American workers is a better way of going at it than finding those employers who employ people without authorization. And if you had a more market-based system, you'd have fewer people out there employing people without authorization. So I'd work at it more. I mean, I think the problem with employer sanctions is it worked on it entirely that Immigration enforcement in and of itself would change the labor market. I'm not sure that that's true. I think that working on overall improvements in the the labor market and in labor conditions probably will have an overall impact on immigration, but it also will help all American workers. Right, right, right. Do you think expanding the U-Visa program is is a good idea? Yeah, I mean, the U-Visa program Mm -hmm. has been one of the, I mean, two things that have been very helpful alternatives to uh, asylum in some cases, and it has proved generally perhaps easier to administer than the asylum system have been the U-Visa program, uh, to a lesser extent the T-Visa program. And I'm wondering, too, why why do you think there hasn't been a proposal for the Nicara or uh, Cuban um, forgiveness? Um, or Cuban Adjustment Act, why haven't there been proposals for these types of, like, Northern Triangle-specific reliefs? That's that's an excellent question. As you know, uh, some of the country, I mean, Nicaragua, El Salvador, and I think uh, Honduras were were included in the original NACARA, and I actually thought NACARA was one of the best programs out there. Uh, you know, at that time I was at the board, but it took, I think it took 10,000 cases off the board's docket wow. almost overnight. And, and my experience in immigration court was that the vast majority of cases were able to be processed at the asylum office. And even the ones coming over from the asylum office, often once you get the lawyers working on it, could be worked out and truly short fashion and I think I, I think they charged user fees for it so it probably if not made money I, I suspect the government at least broke even on uh, 
uh, an ACARA program. So, yeah, I, you're making a good point. I think ACARA, in my view, was a model program. Now, of course, even ACARA was helped along a little bit when Janet Reno provided a presumption. You know, that made the cases a lot easier. I mean, that's why the cases were a lot easier to try than, say, suspension of deportation or cancellation of removal case because with the presumption, the government almost never was able to uh, rebut it and indeed seldom even tried. So even that took a little tinkering, but I think uh, overall the result of NACARA was uh, high benefit, low administrative costs. And I did get to do, you know, some people got their final NACARA grants and they were very satisfying cases. Many of them were people that had been here well over a decade. Their kids, uh, some of them had kids who were U.S. citizens. The families had worked hard. So you sort of got to see the success and the contributions that people were making given a chance to do it. And then I felt by giving them the green card, I was enabling them to, you know, to go from working at the sandwich shop to maybe owning the franchise or go from being a construction worker to be being a crew foreman or running their own company or go from driving the dump trucks. I think one guy ended up buying the dump trucks and he became <laughs> the, the manager of the company uh, doing home with his wife. So, you know, it felt like, you know, I used to tell some of the uh, attorneys in front of me both sides, it was like building America one case at a time. Uh, so it was a good program. Why it hasn't been used as a model, uh, I don't know, but maybe it should be. And then I have another question. You, We talked a lot about um, asylum processing abroad. Why do you think that that isn't something that's been put forward as a well, proposal? Well, it has been. It has been. I think it's in, uh, boy, it was in one of the plans. Was it uh, Bernie's plan? Either Bernie or Elizabeth's plan was going to reinstitute the Central American Miners Program and set aside a large number, you know, I forgot what's 100,000, 10,000, but it, you know, it's become a much larger program. I, it is something I'm in favor of. I, I think that trying to solve the problems in the region and screen people before they uh, come to the border or use smugglers or uh, take dangerous journeys is, is a good idea. I think if you uh, if you restored asylum law to the legal criteria that were in the Refugee Act in 1980 and the generous intent that the Supreme Court emphasized in the Cardoso-Fonseca case, then a lot of uh, cases from Central America could be granted abroad and that would solve the problem of folks uh, coming through Mexico and caravans some of the exploitation. And you wouldn't take everybody, but uh, maybe if people got the answer on their end, uh, they wouldn't be as inclined uh, to take the jury. I don't know. But I think, uh, you know, I think it's uh, it's certainly worthwhile that in the past, no administration has really allocated sufficient numbers uh, to Western Hemisphere uh, refugee programs. It, the number, even in the best days, the numbers have already uh, always been, I think, smaller uh, than the real need, and the requirements for the programs are often overly restrictive. So, you know, only people that help the U.S. Embassy or have some connection to the U.S. can possibly qualify. But again, I think it's a good idea. I think it's a lot better than processing people at the border. And I think it fits in well with maybe working with other countries. There are probably other places in the hemisphere where people can find refuge and be safe. Canada's probably in that category. Costa Rica, there are a few other countries out there that uh, could probably take some Northern Triangle refugees. I don't think that Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador are in that group. So, uh, of course, this administration uh, chose to work with the countries. least likely to be able to actually provide any type of safe haven. Right. <laughs> well, you know, one time there was a, a proposal that the Trump administration basically blew off, and that was 
talking about you have 47 years of experience is that correct yeah yeah 47 years of experience in immigration law what would be the top three legislative or you know what would be the top three structural changes you would make to the immigration system to protect immigrant rights and i don't want to say expand immigration because that shows my bias but to protect immigrant rights contributions 
but we probably have 10 million more people in the legal immigration system rather than being underground. So we could have been a lot more generous, a lot more market-based, and it really wouldn't have added to our population much over the non, you know, the ill-functioning system we already have. So how to harness legal immigration, make it work in the interests of both the legal immigrants and our country, you know, I think is something that we need to address. Immigration enforcement could then be aimed more at, you know, preventing smuggling, preventing fraud, preventing people who are really here to do bad things, terrorists, and that's a very small slice of the pie. I mean, now I'd say 96, probably more than 95% of immigration enforcement is directed at people who aren't any real threat to the United States and most might be a net neutral as they, uh, they state. Plus, if you had a functioning system, then putting people at the end of the line might actually be uh, more of a deterrent than it is in a system where there is no line and the idea that they're going to have to go to the end of the line is just sort of a, uh, a fiction. So fixing the, the overall immigration system, I think, should be a high national priority, and that would affect both the refugee system, the immigration courts, positive effects on our economy. We could do more rational immigration enforcement, less, much less detention, much less civil enforcement, and more concentration on the real law enforcement problems that immigration might uh, present. Yeah. Which, by the way, aren't really getting a lot of detention now. I don't get the Nothing I've seen indicates that uh, this administration is doing a better job of prosecuting uh, smugglers or human rights traffickers than, than the last one. So right. If anything, it's encouraging that kind of behavior by making corruption. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's some indications that criminal prosecutions of meaningful crimes have gone down under this administration. Right. Uh, uh, there was a spike in prosecution of low-level immigration crimes under Sessions, but even that is dropped off. So their immigration enforcement really has had little to do with uh, protecting America and mostly to do with, you know, sort of grabbing some of the low-hanging fruit to make political points with Trump's base. I mean, one of the first groups they went after were folks who came in to, uh, we've been given long-term prosecutorial discretion, deferred action by the last administration. Right, right. We were already in the system. Finally, they showed up and they were put on airplanes. But it didn't matter, you know, I mean, they were mostly people who were minding their own business. Uh, Yeah, families. You know, they came in voluntarily. They were paying taxes. They had kids here claiming that there's this huge uh, problem working on solving it when really, I think... uh, there's very little they've done that have actually improved America. Most of it has gone in the opposite direction. Well, yes, definitely. I mean, that was that was the goal. The goal was to destroy immigration but, or to... Well, you sort of got into it. Maybe we could end on I'm just going to give you my three observations. Right, uh, great. <laughs> what this administration has done is, first, they've given... You know, by shutting down the asylum system, making it harder to use the legal system, pulling out the welcome mat, I think they've empowered smugglers and traffickers that over yes. as time goes on, fewer and fewer people will choose the legal system and those who are desperate to come will get smuggled or, yeah. or try and get into the interior of the country where their chances of being caught even under this administration are fairly minute. So, and of course, the smugglers will change their business models. So, smuggling will become more, you know, they were just bringing people to the border and leaving them, having to get them into the interior. The costs will go up. The methods will get more dangerous. You know, you probably have more people dying in the backs of trucks or train cars uh, as they try and move people into the United States along with the goods more smuggling by boat, more coming across the northern border. So 
Uh, because immigrants here are now rethinking that and thinking about whether they have better options in other places, whether it's Canada, the European Union, uh, some parts of Mexico, Singapore. So I think we're increasing the competition for among other developed countries for the migrants we say we want in our legal system by making our legal system and our atmosphere here uh, less attractive. And finally, we've touched on this, I think, by withdrawing from many international agreements, by abandoning basically the refugee convention, throwing up roadblocks to legal immigration, not wanting to work with other alliances of the United Nations. We're basically losing our place at the table and our leadership in addressing future immigration issues. The human migration has been around as long as there have been human beings. It's, uh, it was there before we had national borders, and it will continue to be there for as long as there are human beings. No one country is going to be able to solve it through unilateral enforcement methods. And to the extent that we're withdrawing from international cooperation, that we're not resettling our fair share of refugees, that we're trying to duress other countries into being our buffer zone, that's all going to come back to haunt us uh, in that uh, uh, the solutions to my, we aren't going to have a lot of say in the solutions to migration, but we will be affected by them because you're not going to keep everybody out. So I think you're going to get more extra legal migration and more migration that we really don't have any role in shaping result of our short-sighted, you know, we can wall ourselves off from everybody policies. And I think that will have some very serious consequences out in the future. I mean, abs- absolutely. I think the I think every country currently that's somewhat stable is experiencing a spike in migration to it, and the response has been um, to swing towards higher enforcement, which has a lot of deleterious effects for both for both immigrants and for the governments themselves. I mean, if all the countries that migrate that are safe for migrants to go to start saying we're not going to take anybody you know how's that going to work i mean they're they're obviously then it's a question of who's the weakest link in that chain who can we penetrate who can we bribe but uh, uh as one of my colleagues once said you got to understand desperate people are going to do desperate things and as we do have i mean yes there are some people who may choose to stay put, but there are a lot of people out there, you know, I think there are a lot of Syrian refugees out there who probably would have preferred to stay in Syria. They just can't. The country's been destroyed. So those people aren't going to go back to a country that's basically been wiped out, and probably over time, you're not going to be able to confine them to refugee camps. I mean, that's one of the problems that's kept the Middle East in turmoil for years is the idea that you can put all the Palestinians in refugee camps and then just sort of forget about them. So as you get more and more people in refugee camps, the situation of trying to contain everybody and keep them all there becomes less and less tenable. And as we know from other experience, one of the reasons why the UN doesn't like to build a lot of refugee camps new ones is because refugee camps have traditionally become a, uh, a breeding ground for terrorism, sexual exploitation, and, and other unsavory things. Yeah, they're you got, a whole bunch of des- you got a whole bunch of desperate people with no future all in one place. And denied and access to basic resources. There's, that, there's almost right. no access to medicine. It's difficult to even get food or clean water. It's, yeah, it's completely right. ridiculous. People, people deprived of those things tend to take a, a uh, perhaps a negative, you know, they, they tend to be less deterred by the fact that they might be risking their life by right, right. either making a dangerous journey or carrying out a terrorist act. I mean, it's sort of, 
Absolutely. So, Paul, those are all, not going to lie, sad conversations. Do you have any benefits, anything to look forward to? Do you think it's likely? Well, all right. Well, yeah. look for, all right. That's what we look forward to is, I think, I've been encouraged by the response of the new due process army. I mean, we have more people right. out there than ever who are speaking up, both politically and in the legal system for migrants' rights, helping other people out. You know, there's a religious community, the NGO community, but a lot of law firms and private organizations, even companies are, uh, are joining the battle, recognizing that, paraphrasing Martin Luther King, you know, injustice to, uh, to one is injustice to everyone. And it's right. really our humanity and all of our rights that are at stake here, not just the rights of the others. And it's always an up and down, Babel, and uh, you know, we win some, we lose some, but I think even today, on a daily basis, I hear from a lot of people who are saving lives in immigration court, they are getting people a life-saving relief they need. You know, we are winning, particularly in the lower court, some of the court cases haven't done as well in the, the Supreme Court, but, you know, there are, you know, even uh, the administration can't get Roberts and his four buddies to intervene in every single lower court case. sure if that was the most uplifting note <laughs> but I do like I do like this image of the struggles that we're having now eventually being overcome by the combined yeah, effort of many people due process forever we will prevail I love it it's amazing thank you so much Paul